Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm your host, Kirk O'Bear. Hope you're having a decent weekend and uh, enjoying yourself. So grab a cup of coffee and uh, pull up a chair and listen to what I have to say. (laughs) So uh, I was just uh, looking back at some of our archives, and we've been on the air for think uh, well over 20 years now. I got, I'm not quite sure of the exact number, but every Saturday uh, for all that time, you've been able to listen to my musings about the law. So you'd think that eventually at some point I'd run out of things to talk about, but I never do. I've always got something to say. So today I want to talk about the first Amendment, and I know I've talked about it before, but I want to talk it, talk about it, particularly in the context of criminal law and how the right to express yourself, the right to state an opinion, and particularly the right to criticize the government, is at the heart of the First Amendment, and we have all these examples of situations where. Because of criminal law, and I'll talk a little bit later about how there are some civil law aspects of this that also impact or temper one's right to say what they want. So there is a federal statute and there are um, state law equivalents that make it so what you say can be the basis of a criminal charge. And if you've never heard this uh, saying before, it's one that is taught to law students in law school. You're not allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. And what that means is that you're saying something, and if you're looking at whether or not you have that right to free speech by yelling fire in a crowded theater, what you're doing is if there assuming there isn't a fire by the way that's part of the <laughs> part of the analysis here is there is no fire you're just saying fire in a crowded theater and if you cause a disruption and people react to that and they stampede and you know people are injured or whatever and you did it um, outside the bounds of where your protected speech uh, falls under the first amendment then Yes, it can be a criminal charge. You can be held liable for that. So, but as I said, there's a this federal law and a state equivalent that talks about when you're being interrogated. Specifically, the federal law is 18 U.S.C. 1001. And it says that if you are read your rights and you waive them, and then you talk to an investigator, and if you say something that isn't true, there's a federal crime um, for that. And so generally, people are allowed to say whatever they want uh, to the public, to whomever, and especially if it has to do with um, the government and what the government is doing, that is the heart, the essence of the First Amendment. But ironically, if there is a federal official who's asking you questions about an investigation and you do not tell the truth, even if you say, it wasn't me, I didn't do it, I wasn't there, um, you can be criminally charged for 
giving a false statement to a federal official. And our uh, state functional equivalent of that is called obstruction. So there's all kinds of case law that deals with different scenarios where someone, you know, all the way from, hey, sir, what's your name? If a cop walks up to you, and if you give a false name, you know, do you have... Pleased to meet you. Do you have the right to uh, give incorrect information? Do you have the right to say, I'm Joe Smith, when your name is Joe Jones, you know? And uh, years and years worth of case law deal with how that expression, how the words that come out of your mouth are something that can get you in trouble. Even though our founding fathers thought it was very, very important that we have the ability to say things and that people should not be prosecuted for things they say. That's what that First Amendment means. Because think, go back to when we were the colonies and we were British subjects. Well, there were laws that you could not say bad things about the king or bad things about the British army and you couldn't gather in a public place to try and protest anything. And when the Constitution was drafted, guess what? That's number one, the First Amendment, the most important one, the one that says you can say what you think, what you feel, what you believe without any repercussions from the government. And the classic example of why we don't allow prosecution for that is that someone would say, I don't like the British. I think taxation without representation isn't fair. Right. I mean, you're expressing an opinion that you have about the way the government is working. And that's protected. It's supposed to be fully protected. But as with most things that relate to constitutional rights over the years, uh, there are many more exceptions than there are the basic rule. I mean, you got one rule, you got many exceptions to that rule. And yelling fire in a crowded theater is probably one of the prime examples of where you can't do that. You can't lie to an investigator, as I've already said. But, um, you know, when it comes to stating an opinion, about uh, something wrong, something wrong with the government. That's really the essence of what we're talking about. I don't like this. Um, The people in power are doing something incorrect. And I, as as a citizen, object, and here are the reasons why. That's what's supposed to be protected, to keep our freedom intact. Now, let's add another layer to all of this. And that is when someone is charged criminally, there are all of a sudden new rules as to what that person can or can't say. And it's a combination of the fact that when a person has a right to remain silent, ironically, under the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, um, and if someone chooses to waive that by making a statement in spite of that right, then they're kind of waiving a bunch of other rights at the same time. So oftentimes we'll have, in our office, we'll have people that are um, public figures and they'll have something to say about what's going on. And the general advice is, 
you know, please don't talk. Please don't talk about it because anything you say will be recorded and will be used at a later time. And you're basically, you know, waiving a right that you would otherwise have. It's interesting, though, because that right to remain silent gets balanced with that right to express yourself, that right to criticize what you see around you and even what's happening to you. That's a fully legitimate right. So balancing all of this, it gets very, very complicated. Now, there's been years and years and years of litigation surrounding different statutes, different laws that impact expression. And some of it gets into the realm of um, things like, you know, pornography and things like that. There's been a lot of litigation dealing with how the First Amendment impacts regulations that um, would encompass that type of material. Whether you're talking about it or showing it or exhibiting it, or whether it's art or a film or pictures or whatever. Um, there's, they've, there's been attempts to regulate that type of stuff. And of course we have laws that if something is purely illegal because of the content of it, then, you know, those have all been upheld, but not because of basic obscenity. Now, there was an entire period in our history where there were a slew of obscenity laws. In different states, there was actually a federal obscenity law as well. That, this is where the classic example comes from, how do you know something is you know, obscene. Well, you know it when you see it, which is a very non-legal way of saying it's subjective. And when you uh, encounter something that is offensive, it's basically, you know, you know it because you're offended, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Well, all of there were many, many laws in practically every state that had to do with um, censorship and squelching expression in that area. And when we come back from this break, we're going to talk about the considerations that go into um, when something along those lines ends up violating the First Amendment. We'll be right back. So during that last segment, I was uh, interrupted by my phone, which thought I was talking to it. And uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I also have the Amazon box, you know, the different things throughout your house. And I'm very careful not to say her name. We just call her the lady in the box, because if you say it accidentally, something might happen, like your lights might go on or off or your car might start. Who knows? Um, or you might buy something inadvertently. But <laughs> so I left that in. I could have edited it out, but I thought it was funny. So anyway, I left it there. My phone thought I was talking to him and said, what can I help you with? But anyway, going back to a lot of these um, lawsuits that were filed, and it's primarily in the realm of criminal laws that made uh, obscene material against the law. And it's a well-established principle that the states, and not so much the federal government, but the states, can... Uh, you know, make laws that reflect the morality or basic principles of the citizens who live in that state. 
And the idea behind it is that if you have elected legislators that represent the people and those legislators think that we need to do something to protect the public against immoral things, then um, we can pass those laws and they are valid under the Constitution because that has to do with states' rights and what states can do and what they should do. Now, when it comes to obscene materials, it is very complicated because you have to look at laws that how finely tailored they are, and that's a legal term, how closely connected the statute is to what the goal of the statute is. And time and time again, we've seen situations where different legislative bodies have tried to create laws that target something, such as obscene material, but there's no good way of defining exactly what that is in a objective sense. So, we, as I was saying before, the subjective test is you know it when you see it. You're offended. But who is offended? Is it people in your community where you live? Is it people that may or may not have seen something like this before? Is it people of different age groups? What is the relevant context? And that's where things start getting very complicated. Because if it encompasses too much material where one can say that this law covers, yes, what was in, it was intended to cover, but also those types of things that are protected by the First Amendment. It's called overly broad. And when something's constitutionally overly broad, and it actually prohibit that same law, where someone could say, oh, this thing is obscene because of the way the law is written, then that becomes a First Amendment constitutional issue. Because if you can say that, oh, yes, that one example, clearly, but this other example, uh, theoretically, if the law could be used in such a way to um, restrict speech that is protected, and, you know, obscene speech in and of itself is not protected, but speech that could be interpreted by somebody else to be obscene is protected. That's the point. So you see how complicated this can get. Now let's apply this to the criminal context where we're talking about, let's say I am a public figure or, or not even not a public figure, and I want to go out and say something to the world. I don't like this particular thing, or I feel that I'm being treated unfairly, and I want everybody to know about it. Again, that's the essence of your freedom of expression, your freedom of speech, to say you disagree with what the government's doing to you. But then, if you're charged with a crime, and you're making statements in that context, what can end up happening is this overlay of rules that relate to the court's authority, now we're switching here, we're switching from the person to the court itself, having authority over a person's, frankly, freedom. Because and when anyone's charged with a crime, there is the issue of, are they allowed to not be in custody? Can they be free on bail? And this is one of those great ironies in our American law system is that if somebody, obviously people don't want to be incarcerated while they're awaiting trial because you're presumed innocent and you shouldn't have to 
be in that situation. But if a court determines that, okay, I will not have you in custody, but in order for you to not sit in jail while you're waiting for your case to be adjudicated, you're going to have to agree to a number of conditions. And some of those conditions directly impact other rights that you might have. It happens all the time where we have cases where somebody uh, makes an allegation against somebody else. And then we have that initial appearance. We have the judge determine that, all right, I'll not take you into custody. I won't make you post, you know, $100,000 or whatever. Or even if you do post the $100,000, the judge can still order that I don't want you to have any contact with this person that made an allegation against you. In addition to that, I don't want you to publicly comment on this case in such a way where it may appear that you're manipulating or threatening a witness. Now, we talked before about how that subjectivity of what one's intentions are behind what they say. And think about that. And I've encountered this many, many times. If somebody says something publicly, it could be a newspaper article, it could be a radio interview, it could be a TV interview, it could be a national TV you know, coverage of the thing. And if someone says, everything this person says is a lie, and the prosecutor is um, corrupt, I mean, that sounds like something that should be protected speech, doesn't it? You know, you're talking about a government process against you. But then there are these rules that if you, it sounds like you are manipulating the process, it's a different set of rules that applies and, and kind of overlaps and overlays what someone does. And when we get into this subjective territory, that's when you have the risk that a prosecutor or a judge that set those ground rules will disagree with whatever that person's intent was, even if they were trying to you know, exercise their First Amendment rights to say this is wrong. But of course, things are different. You know, when someone's in court and they're represented by counsel, the expectation is that the lawyer will do the talking and the lawyer will say what my client uh, believes or what my client's position is without the client actually having to speak. And that's really one of those reasons. If you look at the interplay between the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment guarantees your right to counsel. The Fifth Amendment guarantees your right to remain silent. And there's a due process element to both of those. And what happens is, in order to not incriminate oneself under the Fifth Amendment, they have that right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment. And the counsel then does the talking. So if I'm going to make a statement on behalf of my client, I can say anything I want um, that will not necessarily be attributed to my client unless I say, my client says this, you know, no, I'm talking about the case. I'm talking about the posture of the case. I may be talking about some issue, but at the same time, you know, that right to remain silent is based on the fact that one should not be required to participate in their own prosecution against their own interests. So that's why most good lawyers anyway, don't make statements publicly about a pending case. And most good lawyers advise their clients not to say anything publicly when you've got criminal charges pending against you. It's just good common sense, and it's how you protect all of those rights all at the same time. 
So now let's look at the realm of when one feels, which is very common, that they've been unjustly accused of something. There's this notion, this, this idea within our criminal law context that it'll all be decided once a jury finds somebody not guilty. And in the interim, you're supposed to just keep your mouth shut, not talk about anything, and let the process work itself out. But remember what I just said. There are these conditions that any judge can impose on somebody that limits or, you know, in some way retracts some of the rights while the case is pending. So these are not things that were built into the Constitution. The idea that a judge could say, I'll not keep you in the Huskow if you agree to these 10 things that you have to do without, you can object and say, I don't want to do that. But then the answer is the judge could say, too bad. You have to if you want to be out of custody. All right, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. So, again, we're talking about the First Amendment and the interplay between criminal laws and that right to express yourself or the right to say things. And, you know, I got to tell you, for years, there was a very, I think, um, logical area of the law that persisted for, I guess, what, 40, 50 years in the various uh, circuit courts of appeal throughout the country. And it was something called the exculpatory no doctrine. Now, I will tell you, flash forward, that has been basically extinguished throughout the country for various reasons. But um, the idea behind it was that when one is being interrogated, it's a natural response to deny that you're guilty. I mean, (laughs) you have a right to say you're not guilty in court, right? When the judge says, what is your plea? You can say not guilty. Prove it. And the notion behind exculpatory no's when, and let me just give you an example. Hey, uh, did you rob the bank? No, it wasn't me. Um, The idea was that you couldn't be prosecuted for lying to investigators if all you did was deny your involvement. And it kind of made sense because if you know anything about the things that lead up to police interrogating people, they've most likely, almost always, done an investigation. And they have reason to suspect somebody of having done something. And when somebody says, it wasn't me, they're often not surprised. It's not something that actually misleads an investigation. In fact, if you talk to well-trained interrogators, they will tell you that they go into every interview assuming that the suspect is going to deny what they did, what, or they, what they're suspected of doing, I should say. So, you know, this was a good common sense rule that said people can't really be held liable or there shouldn't be any consequence for saying, you know, I didn't do what you think I did. Um, And by the way, there's, you know, a a scale there, because oftentimes, if you think about something that someone might have been suspected of, let's use the bank robbery example. Let's say the guy, what he really did was he drove somebody there and somebody else robbed the bank. And they say, hey, you helped him. And the guy in his own mind thinks all I did was give someone a ride. It wasn't me. And 
the exculpatory no doctrine used to say that one could not be prosecuted for lying to investigators simply because they denied what they're accused of. And it's built into our system that one should have, as I've said before, the right to put the government to their burden. But then you've got this weird little hitch in the analysis, which is that um, you have that right to remain silent. And when you waive it, which no one should ever do, by the way, <laughs> you know, it's, it's as if they say, you've got this right, you've got this fundamental right, it's embodied in the Bill of Rights. But if you waive it, then you've got all kinds of problems, depending on what you say. And you've heard of Miranda versus Arizona. That's where our Miranda rights come from. And trust me, um, <laughs> after that decision came out, it was very upsetting to many law enforcement officials that wanted to find ways to still get people to waive that right. Now they had to read them. They had to say, you have the right to remain silent. And at the time, they were very worried that this would have a huge impact on their ability to get people to confess to things. But as we all know, and I can tell you from years and years of experience in this area, that many people who should definitely not waive their rights oftentimes do. And I've talked about it a lot on this show that there are many, many actual human variables that apply to that situation. And believe it or not, interrogators are allowed to apply psychological pressure. They're allowed to mislead people. They're allowed to lie. They're allowed to lie. Think about that. Uh, an investigator can lie to somebody and say, we've got Joe Schmo over here that says he's an eyewitness to what you did. They're allowed to do that as part of an interrogation, as long as it doesn't cross the line where it becomes coercive, which again is another subjective variable here. And if in response to that, somebody says, he's lying, it wasn't me, I wasn't there, as kind of a you know natural response to being accused of something, now that the exculpatory no doctrine no longer exists, someone can be prosecuted for in state court obstructing or in federal court for, you know, lying to or being, um, you know, less than honest with an interrogator, a federal interrogator. So think about the, how this applies to situations where someone is making public statements. Now, they're not doing it to you know, an official who's, who's putting them under oath or, you know, reading them their rights, but it is something that when one can, um, there's a, there is a theory that when one says something publicly about what happened, what didn't happen, and that they're simply denying that they're not guilty of something and they're doing it publicly, that that could be deemed something that is criminally misleading, which is often why lawyers don't make statements publicly, and they shouldn't. They really shouldn't. I mean, I get calls all the time when I have cases. The media people call me and they're like, what do you want to say on behalf of your client? And I very politely say, um, I'm not making any statements, thank you. You know, the classic no comment. <laughs> um, because... Uh, you know, it can be something where if it can be attributed 
to my client or if there's something that I very carefully instructed my client not to make public statements about what's going on. I don't want any of it to backfire in some way that the rules that the judge have set forth, and again, very broadly interpreted, if there's any suggestion that there's manipulation of the process going on, um, yeah, people can get in trouble. Now, every defense lawyer has had that client where you give them advice, you tell them what you think is best, but um, especially if it's a public figure, they can end up feeling the need to say something about what's going on. And I, I've been there. I, I've had those clients. And it's understandable that some kind of public response is necessary. And in spite of my best advice, sometimes those clients will uh, not be able to resist the urge to say something about what's going on. And when that happens, um, my experience has been that it's fair game. Anything that somebody says about what's going on can then be used in a number of different ways. And one of them is this notion of consciousness of guilt. Again, another subjective factor here that I've had many occasions where a prosecutor would say the manner in which my client denied something or the way that my client said this isn't right and and all sorts of interpretations of what should be protected by the First Amendment ends up becoming evidence against a defendant. And once again, that's why the Fifth Amendment's there is so that someone doesn't have to participate as a witness against themselves even if it's a matter of interpretation, guesswork, or um, some sort of, you know, um, way of how someone might deny something. And think about that. I've had plenty of cases where somebody got interrogated, unfortunately they weighed their rights, and then they're confronted with an allegation. And then they say, no, no, that's ridiculous, it wasn't me. Only to have the prosecutor later play that recording and then argue that the person's body language or their the tone in their voice or look he's got his arms crossed that must mean that he's lying you see so that's why when statements are made in any context whether it's interrogational or publicly um there's the risk that one can use any of that um later and then argue whatever they want. Because after all, when things go to a jury, it's a matter of persuasion. And this is one of the things that lawyers do that, frankly, nobody should be proud of. But they take facts or information that they purport to be facts, and they manipulate them in such a way that they try and be persuasive. They argue a point. Hey, see how... See the look in this person's eyes. See the way they said it. That sounds like a guilty person, in my opinion. You know, we see that all the time. And that's why when any kind of statement is made in that kind of context, it can be um, interpreted any way you want from any number of perspectives. So anyway, time for another break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed those announcements and 
public messages and advertisements and all those things. And uh, you go out and buy all of those products, whatever they were. I didn't hear them. But I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the civil context, as I promised I would do earlier in the show. And, you know, this has to do with what we um, commonly refer to as libel or slander. And they're basically the same thing. It means a public statement, either in written or spoken form, where somebody says something that damages the reputation of another. And this is a very multi-layered analysis because it has to do with who the subject of the... Hey, Leo, don't bark. That's my dog barking. Um, Who the subject is, if there's somebody that has the ability to publicly respond because of their access to the media, how big of a public figure the person is, and then whether or not it can be alleged that the intention behind slandering or libeling somebody is intended to cause them financial or reputational harm. Okay, so now let's tie this into what we were talking about before, where something is in the criminal context and somebody is facing criminal charges and the very nature of what they're accused of is something that damages that person's reputation. And and this has been, of course, litigated and dealt with. And when one from the executive branch of the government, which is, we're talking about the DA's office or the U.S. Attorney's office or whatever charging agencies involved, um, goes through the process of officially filing charges, either by indictment or criminal complaint or whatever the case may be. And then they go through the process of um, attempting to prove guilt of that person. That's not speech. That's not anybody talking. That's a process. And when someone responds to that by saying, you have damaged my my reputation by charging me with something that I think you're just trying to sully my reputation or you're trying to make things more difficult to me, that takes it well out of the realm of civil liability. So we deal with this a lot as defense lawyers because we have people all the time that are accused of doing something. The fact that they're accused of A, B, and C um, under some violation of criminal law taints that person's reputation automatically just because they're accused of it. And that doesn't fall within these libel and slander laws because there is a process and we say we say that people are innocent until proven guilty and we say those words we say it out loud we tell everybody you know no one's convicted of anything until a jury says so or unless there's a plea that is entered nonetheless things take time and there's a process that things go through and the allegation of something, I mean, let's say it's a murder, let's say it's a sexual assault, let's say it's something awful, you know, fraud, deceit, whatever, you know, and someone is alleged to have done something. In the modern world, all that stuff is publicly available, and people understand that they can find out about what's alleged. I mean, we, we hear talk all the time about what the contents of an indictment or a criminal complaint are, and the way that the modern world, the modern uh, person who is going to uh, 
uh, read such things or listen to news coverage of such things is going to, unfortunately, assume that they're true. Now, outside of the criminal context, someone couldn't just say, hey, this person did this, that, and the other thing without having a good faith basis to believe it and without the person having an opportunity to respond. But you put it in the criminal context, and I guess we rely on the fact that people are innocent until proven guilty, and we can tell each other, we can tell the defendant, we can tell the public that, hey, remember, there's been no conviction, so don't judge this person, even though we're publicly telling you what we think this person did. And then that puts that, puts that person in a position where they just have to go through this process. And, and trust me, I deal with this every day. Someone is accused of doing something very, very bad. And then the judge puts all these restrictions on their activities, what they can or can't do, what they can or can't say, where they can or can't go. Um, you know, and basically it feels like guilty until proven innocent. But, of course, the court and the everyone will remind others that that's not the case. They're innocent until proven guilty because, after all, that's the way the law works. But everything being so public, it makes you wonder... Especially if the judge says, don't talk about the case publicly. Don't talk about what the evidence is against you. Don't talk about what you've learned through just the discovery process, through the DA's office, the U.S. Attorney's office, through your lawyer who has given you information that is, let's say, untrue, or let's say debatable, or let's say... The, the defendant believes that it's something that is a hoax or a fraud or wrong in any way. I mean, where does the First Amendment get accounted for in that situation without running the risk of those words being used against somebody? It's, a, it's kind of a gap in the process when you think about it. And it kind of begs the question... You know, should there be so many restrictions on somebody's ability to talk about what they're accused of, um, especially if it's somebody that is going to potentially suffer um, in one way or another, financially or otherwise, while the case is pending? And, and I often feel like the executive branch, the prosecutors, they hide behind the fact that they can say this person's innocent until proven guilty. Oh, of course, you know, there's no way of knowing if this person actually did those things. But then they expose in great detail how the investigation occurred, credibility determinations that were made, etc. And it may or may not even be true. By the way, there's no requirement that anything in an indictment or a criminal complaint be 100% true or credible. In fact, in court, when we have a preliminary hearing, a judge is not even allowed to consider the credibility behind one's statement. So in other words, if a judge had a notion that what someone said about something is not credible, they are prohibited from considering that when determining if there's probable cause to go forward. In other words, a judge could fully believe that someone is lying and still say, well, given all inferences in favor of the government and assuming 
that the government can prove these things to be true at a later point in time, judges are required to bind over or allow cases to go forward without considering affirmative defenses, without considering credibility. None of these things. So, you know, the fact that someone gets uh, put in a position where they're alleged to have done something very, very bad that the public will not like, there's literally no protection and no way for a person to address that. And as I said before, no lawyer is going to make a public statement on behalf of their client, and they're going to advise that client not to make any statements. But at the same time, what happens in the interim? It happens all the time where people, their reputations are destroyed just because of the allegations, or there is financial loss, or they lose their job. And I can't tell you how many clients I have that because there's an entry of what they're accused of that can easily be looked up online if you know how to do it. And even though, I'll give you an example, in Wisconsin it says you are not to, nobody's allowed to discriminate against a person for housing, employment, or any other reason based on information that's contained in the Wisconsin Circuit Court Access database. Yet, it happens all the time. It happens every day. And the excuse that I normally hear is that if somebody says, oh, well, this is an employee of mine, and given what they're accused of, there is the risk that they may be incarcerated for decades because of the maximum penalties that might apply. And as a business owner, I'm not willing to take that risk. I need to plan ahead and account for the fact that this person might not be available and I shouldn't be, you know, financially harmed in that way, which is an excuse for basically doing exactly what you're not supposed to do, which is discriminate against somebody because they've been accused of a crime. All right. Well, sorry I got on my high horse there a little bit, but tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend, everybody.